Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Soil Talk. Uh, Mick Godekin and I have got a guest with us uh, today, and and hopefully that guest is nice to us because he's our boss. Uh, Glenn Franz Lubers is the uh, Director of Professional Ag Services that uh, Mick and I fall under with our work that we do in nutrient management and the innovation plots and kind of helping all of our agronomists. So, Glenn, welcome to Soil Talk. Thanks, Tim and Mick. I'm hoping you guys will be a little bit nice to me. I've heard a few of your other Soil Talk podcasts, so got my guard up a little bit. We try not to pick on anyone in specific if we do it equally. Mick generally and I pick on each other more than anybody else. So, <laughs> so Glenn, I hear twenty twenty is a kind of a special year for uh, you know precision ag services here at uh, Central Valley Ag. So, explain that a little bit to to the listeners. Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. Um, 2020 is our 25 years of being involved in ag tech with Central Valley Ag. Um, actually, it started back in 1995, um, and it was some, some of our uh, original companies that weren't even part of CVA at that time, obviously. Um, Brunswick, uh, the co-op there, started doing some grids, and in Shelby, the co-op there was starting to install some ag leader yield monitors. Uh, the first YM2000 yield monitors. So um, it's evolved a lot since then, um, but there are some things that still stay the same. So we've come a long way in 25 years. We've seen a lot of changes. We've seen a lot of evolution. Uh, it's been, been pretty exciting. Um, I do think it's going to be there's going to be a lot more change probably in the next three to five years than we've saw in the last 25. So we better hold on to our hats. When 25 years ago, did you ever imagine that we'd have tractors driving themselves, autonomous vehicles in the field, uh, all the different things that we do today? No, not really. Um, you know, when we started out, we were, we started out obviously doing grid sampling and some variable rate. Um, you know, you watch the Jetsons once in a while when we were kids and see all that technology and boy, you just never knew some of it was, was going to become a reality and, and evolve from where we, where we started. So. So Glenn, really the, the start of it was just the application of uh, global positioning systems, right? Understanding you're in the field, yeah. Yep, correct. That's kind of where we, where we all got started is, you know, putting the GPS out there and and getting hooked up to, to be able to show spatially what our soil test levels were, nutrient levels, um, and yield. So that's kind of where we all started out, and you know, funny enough, that's still a big part of of what our precision ag program is today. Yeah. Yeah. The, those basics really are the foundation still. Mm -hmm. So early in it, when a grower would come in with those newfangled yield maps that they often just come to your desk and lay it in front of you and say, fix it. That was, was definitely part of it. Um, you know, and 
obviously back then uh, we didn't have a lot of the wireless data transfer. So we would have to go out with, with USB sticks or the little compact flashcards um, and collect the data there and then bring it back, process it, and then go through all that information with, with the growers. And it's like, okay, we have low yielding areas here, high yielding, what do we do about it? So that's, that's where we kind of got started going into the, the grid sampling side of things. And, and in some of our areas of our company have evolved into the zone sampling also. But, but when we started our grid sampling, um, one of the main things we were looking at was ag line. Uh, you know, we could spend ten dollars, ten fifty an acre to grid sample, and on average, you know, when we first started this program out, we would do do some analysis on you know the first eight ten thousand acres, and on average, we were saving about a half a ton of lime per acre. So that was actually paying for the grid samples not counting yield increases, not counting the, the benefits from the fertility. So that was our first premise of what, what precision ag should be, was let's fix the pH and start there. You know, Glenn, I think back to, to grad school and it kind of ages me, but we were just starting to recognize soil variability and in some of the graduate work that I did. And, and I look back at it now and I kind of laugh with, with what we know today, but we were out there poking holes in 10 by 10 cells and, and realized that, hey, we have variability out here. And then, you know, the industry kind of drove the market of, of where, do we, where do we draw that line? And industry-wide, we've kind of settled on that two and a half acre grid, but as we progress, I see that getting a little bit smaller. Some of the work I did, we we actually did one foot squares and noticed very quite a lot of variability in, in a short chunk of 250 feet. So where do you see that going? I think we can narrow it down a little bit. Um, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, industry-wide, two and a half became pretty much the standard, whether you're doing two and a half grids or whether you're doing doing zone sampling. But um, we're seeing more and more people as we're shooting for higher yields, um, kind of narrowing that the size of those grids down and maybe going to 2.2, or we've even had some go into one acre grids. And some of those, especially in some of the, the specialty products, um, you know, whether it's the hemp or um, specialty grains, um, things like that, they're, they're kind of narrowing it down. And even the guys in just your conventional corn is, they're shooting for higher yields. They're trying to get over that plateau and trying to narrow down that, that spatial variability a little bit. So there's, there's a few more guys doing one acre grids or two, two acre grids, something like that. But um, eventually I can see that, that narrowing down a little bit to get a little more precise. Our equipment has changed quite a bit over the last 25 years. The capabilities of managing smaller areas is more and more realistic every day. 
Uh, right. And, we we can get down and, and manage things row by row. So, you know, at one time it was just a whole planter width or a whole spreader width. And now we can start start managing things down on a row by row, almost foot by foot basis. Glenn, back to that ag lime conversation. Um, that conversation is really just as valid today as it was 25 years ago when we got started. As you look at applying lime and the variation in soil pH and the variation in soil texture across a field and the need for different amounts of lime as you go across there, we still start that conversation with lime a lot of times. Absolutely. Um, that's one of the things that over 25 years really hasn't changed. Um, you know, you have to have those base nutrients, those macronutrients, the, the soil balance to, to gain those yields. So you have to start with, with your fertility, looking at your pH, getting that in line, then probably phosphorus, potassium, maybe zinc, um, that's where, where we got to start. And I've always been pretty adamant about that. You know, there's, there's some people that will come in and use some satellite imagery and say, okay, we're going to do variable seeding and change our seeding population because this area over here is typically low yielding, whether that's from imagery or yield data. But you got to ask yourself why those areas are low yielding. Um, if you don't address whether it's pH or fertility first, you're dictating what that yield is going to be for the future. Um, if you're saying, okay, it's a low yielding area, so I'm just going to back off on my, my nutrients, I'm going to back off on my seeding, you're never going to get that yield up to where that soil has the potential to get it to. So we, we've got to start with that and, and then move on and take it to some of those next levels. I've always agreed with that. As an agronomist, that's our job. Go out and find the issues in those fields and see if we can fix them before we just give up on them and say it's never going to yield better. Right. And we have a lot of guys that, that have been in the program a lot of years, and we have those, those parts, the pH, the phosphorus, the potassium, zinc, sulfur. They have those under control, and they have them have them to where they need to be to be able to take some of those next steps. So from there, from those guys, once you get that handled, then you can start looking at more other micronutrients like manganese and boron and variable rate seeding and variable rate nitrogen and working up to some of those next steps. But you still have to start with the basic agronomy. And as you chase yield, you can start you know, you've corrected the base factors. Now we can do things like push population higher, split up, split applying nitrogen, you know, maybe a better fungicide application or multiple fungicide applications. It, it's just surprising how many guys want to go chase yield, but we haven't taken care of the basics. And that grids or zone sampling, you know, something better than that composite help us identify the variation of the basics that we can fix. I think a lot of people have seen the Liebig's law, the the barrel with the staves showing the most yield limiting factors. And again, that's it comes back to that basic agronomy. You take your biggest yield limiting factor and you fix that first. And then you keep moving on to your next yield limiting factor, the next one, the next one, 
if you go to something that's a minor yield limiting factor, you're not going to see um, much of an increase in yield or you're not going to see much benefit for it um, until you fix those other things. So Glenn, as you're, you know, working with the grower and your uh, ACS managers are working with growers, you know, a guy's done grid sampling or zone sampling for a couple of cycles. And, and for us at CBA, that, that grid cycle generally can be two to four years before we take another soil sample. With zones, we we look more at the variation year by year and we'll do samples every year. But guy's been in the program for a little while um, with grid sampling. He's followed our variable fertilizer recommendations. What do you usually, you usually recommend as his next step? The next step would end up being doing more of the recommendations based off of um, yield potential, um, fertilizing based off of the yield potential, because once we get those things fixed, we know what our, an accurate estimate of what the yield potential is out there. So um, we're working on the, the yield potential and then moving into the variable rate seeding, which goes hand in hand with variable rate nitrogen. So um, I think those are some of the next steps. Once you kind of get those base things fixed, you can start moving into the variable rate seeding, variable rate nitrogen, and working on it uh, to help find other areas to where you can increase those yields. You know, a lot of guys will talk about zone versus grid and, and what you just talked about there is where it doesn't have to be zone versus grid. You can have yield zones that you lay over layers of grid data and make good decisions melding the two together. You know, population and nitrogen generally belong in zones. Um, phosphorus, potassium, um, pH can be assessed either way. Um, so you, it's not a one or the other. It's, it's, it's whatever makes the most agronomic sense for what you're looking at. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no, no right or wrong answer on, on how you're doing intensive sampling. It's just so that you're doing it. Um, that's, that's the important part is, is collecting that data so we know what, we're, what we need to fix and how we need to fix it. Uh, you can't, can't manage what you don't measure, so that's... That's the number one thing is measuring what's out there so you can actually change something and, and be able to track those changes and see what it does over time. Now, 25 years ago, it was probably just those most progressive growers, the guys who were trying, you know, the out-of-the-box things, the guys that probably got uh, um, accused of using the snake oils a little too much. Um, were the guys that jumped into precision ag, but what do you see now? How, how's that changed in 25 years? Do most of Central Valley Ag's growers uh, use at least some precision ag technology up to and including grid sampling, or do, are there still quite a few guys that really haven't jumped on board? Um, there's still quite a few that haven't. Um, we have a pretty good percentage of our CVA customers that, that are doing some form of precision ag, ag tech, ACS business, um, but there are still there are still some out there that that don't, um, and I guess it kind of depends on how you look at it. Um, if you're talking ag tech or precision ag as data collection, whether it's just collecting yield data or as applied data, planting, harvest data, there's a very very high percentage of people that are doing that. Um, 
So the grid and, and zone sampling with VRT, it's pretty close to half of, of the dry fertilizer and the customers we work with that do something on a, on a VRT precision ag basis. There's still a lot of room for growth, um, but we've come a long way over the last 25 years. Glenn, how would you, what would you say the, the biggest reason for a grower that doesn't do VRT, why is he not doing VRT application? And then second part of that question is, why should he be? I think it goes back to where we kind of started our, our conversation. Um, why they should be is we have to measure the soil fertility. We can't, we can't manage what's out in that field without actually getting soil samples, knowing where our levels are, pHs are, pK, sulfur, zinc, our CECs or organic matters, you know, whatever we're all testing for. Um, if you want to take some of the next steps in yield, you have to start there and start building that data. And then that also kind of goes in with, with the yield data, collecting your harvest data. Um, in order to make a lot of major decisions, you need several years of data collected so you can see what the trends are and make sure it's not just a, an anomaly one year, whether it's a wet year, dry year, um, we had issues during pollination or plant emergence. It was a, a wet year to start with or, you know, plant development. So you have to have several years of yield data collected in order to put those trends and, and make sure you know, know you're on the right track there. So I think those are our big reasons why they should, um, why they shouldn't. Some of it might they might be looking back at cost of entering the program. Um, some people might be tricked into believing they know what's, what their soil test levels are and where the weak areas are. And, you know, we don't need to sample because we've farmed that ground for a long time and we know what the, we know what the nutrient levels are. We know what everything is, but when you start, getting down into narrowly spatially defining that with grids or zones, it can open your eyes to what's, what's really out there. So. I, I ran into that where a grower says, well, that area doesn't produce. So it's gotta be a fertility issue. And it's actually, when you sample it, it's the highest fertility ground on the place because it hasn't produced. And there's some other underlying reason. Uh, a lot of times it goes back to pH. Uh, the pH was not corrected ever. And, and they built up a lot of phosphorus because they weren't taking out any because of the crops. So. Yeah, I have a lot of stories like that from when we first started doing doing our grid sampling. We'd uh, there'd be guys saying, "Well, we got a little spot out, a couple spots out here in the field that just we can't get them to yield. The stalks are all spindly, and you know, no girth to the stalks and and the ears." And so we go out and sample it, and the pH is eight, and it's like, okay, so <laughs> that's your problem. So. 
And then you find out they actually limed the entire field and put two-ton of lime on several years before that. So they already had a pH of eight, plus they threw two-ton of lime on there. That's a double whammy on your the cost part of it that you're losing out on, and then it's also hurting your yield. So there's a lot of a lot of instances like that when we first started the, the program. So you know, when you work with livestock producers, some of those guys decide that they don't need to grid sample because they say, I don't buy much fertilizer anyway, so I'm not going to do much variable I've got cattle manure and, and my nutrient levels are really high. And then you get out there and you talk them into grid sampling one field and you realize, you know, the further you get away from that feedlot, the worse the fertility levels are in this thing. And you get to the other end and it's not good at all. You know, in the composite sample, you got those hot areas that are 200 part per million phosphorus. Well, they're throwing off the rest of it. Um, so that, that, I've seen a lot of value in just leading a livestock producer to try grid sampling one field, you know, and, and manure doesn't normally correct pH issues. So like you said, even if, if all you find is there's some areas that could be limed, that'll ge- generally cover that 10 bucks an acre for the, uh, for grid sampling. Um, but oftentimes you'll find low phosphorus, low potassium areas just because the manure spreader never was all the way across that field or at least in the first 50 years of them having cattle, it wasn't because the manure spreader only held, you know, one cubic yard. And another thing to keep in mind on that too, is what's the soil, soil texture like, you know, as you're going across that field, are there heavier clay pockets with some sandy areas? Is there, you know, is your CEC varying from 15 to to 30, you know, those different soil types are going to react different to how the manure changes some of those uh, nutrient levels, how it builds, um, how it loses some of them, what the yield is that's pulling pulling the nutrients out. You know, some of those areas are going to just typically yield better, so it's going to pull more nutrients out in those areas. So it's also partly soil type that can affect a lot of that too. Well, Glenn, since you're our guest today, it's about time for a funny farm story. And most of our listeners have heard about everything funny that Mick and I've got to say. So what do you got for us? Well, my story kind of is from back when I was probably late grade school, early junior high. Um, I grew up on a farm by Dodge and we, uh, my dad obviously was farming and I had three older brothers. So I was always kind of the one that got stuck staying and cleaning out hog barns, doing the chores while everybody else got to go out and do the field work. So um, kept bugging my dad for a while to let me go out and cultivate. So it was one of those things where, you know, if you graduate up to being able to cultivate, you know, you kind of get out of doing some of the other, the other work. So takes me out to the field, jump on the tractor, start taking off across the field. And first time out, obviously some cultivator blight. So um, get straightened out, get taken off again. There it is again, a little bit more iron blight. So obviously I got demoted after that and ended up having to go back to cleaning out the hog barns and doing chores and and having to wait until the next year before I got a chance to get out of that. So 
Yeah. <laughs> like everybody that that had got started doing some of those things. And and obviously um, that was quite a few years ago. So we didn't have the technology to help us drive straight either. So <laughs> Dad was pretty particular on on straight rows and weed control and cultivation. And and when I screwed that up, it was it was definitely a demotion. Well, if it's any consolation, Glenn, and Mick, I know you will not find this as a surprise. I was never put on the cultivator. I would believe that, Tim, the way you drive. <laughs> the, thing, the thing is, is Glenn still drives that way, and, he, and when he looks at something, his hand tends to follow the direction he looks, if you ever watch him drive down the road. <laughs> We've well, been with you know, it's not just a little blight if I'm running the government. No, you're, you would be complete blight. <laughs> so, Glenn, you know, as you, you look forward, and I know uh, part, of, uh, part of what your role at CVA is, is to look at the technology coming down the road and, and try to understand uh, what's going to be a good value for our growers and helping them increase yield, decrease costs, uh, and what maybe he's going to be a fad and, and we don't want to try tackling. What do you see coming down the road as promising technologies here in the, in the next five years? You know, I think one of the biggest things is we're getting a lot better with data collection and data transfer. Um, we're starting to work more and more with doing profit loss mapping, break evens, uh, utilizing that information to help us make better decisions on the farm. And I think that data collection side of things, the wireless data transfer, the remote remote support, those things are really gonna, gonna help us take some of the next steps in our operations. I think that's one of the things I'm, I'm a little more excited about. Um, it's gonna, gonna help us be a lot more efficient and and a lot more accurate in developing some of these these recommendations and and making these decisions on the farm. Um, I know with with the whole COVID thing going around now, it's kind of forced some of us into a little bit more of the remote support and and working with some of those tools, working with more of the digital tools and data transfer, data collection, remote support. Um, I think that's going to be a big positive for us. Um, by helping us be more efficient and and knowing the importance of collecting that data. Um, a couple other things that we're, we're looking at that are on the horizon. Um, everybody hears all the stories about the autonomous vehicles, you know, self-driving tractors and sprayers. There's more and more of that coming out. And, you know, with, with CBA, we're working with Smart Ag and, and Raven on some of their, some of their technology. Um, we got our fingers crossed. We're hoping to have a, an auto cart demo out this fall uh, for the autonomous side of things. Uh, we're also working a lot with different types of drones to do imagery, scouting, and we're even doing some demos and, and taking a look at some drones for doing actual drone spraying or, or spreading. So those are some technologies that I think over the next few years, they're going to continue to increase and improve. And those are things that'll help us be a lot more efficient out on the farm um, and help us, help us get a little bit better yields, help us identify 
more areas out in the field that that need some of the attention. So. Well, Glenn, we really appreciate you joining us today and congratulations on 25 years of uh, continuing to, to bring technology to our growers and to, to help them uh, improve their yields and reduce their costs, doing all the things that, that we can do with this uh, technology and, and vetting the things that, frankly, uh, just don't cut it. Yep, and we're going to continue to do that and We've swung and missed on a few things in, in the 25 years, definitely with some of the companies that, that are no longer here or some of the products and services that we think, you know, boy, this is going to be a game changer and it turns out not being. So that's a big part of why we do a lot of our research and development and we work with mixed crew and, and stuff on the, the innovation sites is to vet some of these things out and, not release things to our growers that we're not confident that's going to bring them a positive ROI. You know, we don't just want to take the next flash in the pan thing that comes out and try to sell it to our growers. And then they don't have a positive experience with it. And then everybody takes two steps back instead of a step forward. So that's kind of our job. And that's what we're going to continue to do is vet out these new technologies and try to bring positive things things that are going to impact our growers, help them increase their yield or efficiency. Um, before we, before we bring it out to them, we have to have it tested and, and make sure it's going to be going to be a positive thing for them. Mick, any of our listeners can get that information. You compile it every year from the results of your, your plots. Where, where do they go to get that? Yeah, we we compile those results every year, and, and they're all available at cbacoop.com. Just go to our uh, agronomy tab, and usually under uh, innovation plots on the website, there will be a, a flipping book now is how we've got that put together where they can see all the results from last year. All right. Well, with Mick Godekin and Glenn Franz Lubers, this has been Soil Talk. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CBA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cbacoop.com and you can see our agronomy focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.